So when I was in graduate school, I attended Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. RTS had other campuses, but this was the one that I chose to go to. There was a variety of reasons why. When I was in seminary, it was complicated to tell people that I was going to grad school in Orlando because what's Orlando known for? Right, a mouse kingdom. Thankfully, I didn't live on that side of town. Um, Lived over more on the northwest side of the greater Orlando area. While I was there... I got to know lots of different parts of the community that were not the Mouse Kingdom. Not even sure I can say the name without paying a royalty on it, so I'll say Mouse Kingdom and you'll know what I'm talking about. Lived about 20 minutes away from one of the universities in the state of Florida's university system, and I learned... uh, I got to know several members of the marching band for the, for the school and even went to some of their football games. The University of Central Florida had an interesting football season this year, didn't they? They had a perfect season. And though there is another football game being played tomorrow night between two schools that will vie for the national championship of the college football bowl system, In the minds of the students, faculty, staff, and others of the University of Central Florida, the national championship has already been played, and they won. A banner is going to be raised saying that they have won the national championship. The bonuses that are part of the coaches' contracts are going to be paid out because they, in their minds, won the national championship. This is not, by the way, me having a, uh, a trash UCF Golden Knights moment here. This is me saying, I get it. I get it. I get the self-justification. I get the building myself up to say that I'm something that I'm not. I get the surrounding myself with all of the accolades and all of the attaboys and all of the evidences that I'm one thing when I'm really another. The reality is, no matter how many banners they raise or bonuses they pay, by the rules of the system, they're not the national champion. It'll either be the University of Georgia. That was for you because I'm, a, I'm your friend and I love you. Unlike Billy who programmed two songs that have Crimson Tide in it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Here's the thing, friends. You and I are all 
pre-programmed, built from the DNA level to be self-justifying machines. And God in his great and infinite and majestic love for us has pursued us, has rescued us to call us out of our delusions and call us into delight, to rescue us from our pauper kingdoms that can neither save nor justify and call us into his. And so week in and week out, we come and we hear and we encounter the gospel so that we would be disrupted, so that we would be changed. That was the Apostle John's pastoral heart, was to write to Christians to confront all of the places where there is still delusion, where there is still unbelief going on, and say, you're wrong. (laughs) But there is grace and glory and truth in the gospel, and come and believe that. So let's look at how John starts his letter. Turn with me, if you would, to the uh, first letter of John, the first chapter, and we'll read the first four verses Stand together if you would. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we, have, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life of was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which, was, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, would your word dwell richly in us. We don't ask that so that we can feel like we've done some sort of religious duty. We don't ask that so that we can feel like we've learned some new facts. We don't ask that because of any other reason other than we want to be changed. And your word and the one to whom your word points changes us. So do that, we pray, for your glory and our gladness. When you think about what the point of John's letter is. There's a lot of things that can come to mind. 
John says, if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So maybe John's letter is about sin. John's going to get to the, what I think is the point of his letter, and we'll talk about it next week. It's in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Because before we can talk about sin, before we can talk about joy, before we can talk about Jesus, before we can talk about anything else, we have to settle the reality of who is God. Who is God? How do we encounter him? How do we understand him? How do we believe him? Is he the God who's just sitting there in heaven with his arms crossed, tapping his toe, waiting for us to get it together? The one who says, when we come to him again, just as we did this morning, and repent and confess our sin, like, really, again? Guys, we just talked about that last week. Now, I think the reality is that John wants us to know God's heart. And everything else that we do, everything else that we learn, everything else that we experience through this letter and through the gospel itself flows out of knowing who God is and knowing God's heart. This letter doesn't start the way typical letters in this time would. It doesn't start with, I, John, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He goes right into it. That which was from the beginning. In typical John fashion, when he wrote his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You see, for John, all of, the, all of the things that he's getting ready to say flow out of this preamble of the glory of the gospel. And the glory of the gospel is this profound mystery that we just celebrated in this season of Christmas tide that we now declare in this season of epiphany, this season of light, this season of uh, celebrating that the gospel has gone out to the nations. Three Gentile wise men came and beheld the king, the baby Jesus, with his mother. Through God's providence, they fled and went to Egypt. This little baby that Herod tried to wipe out by killing all the firstborn kids under two years old. This one who would come and say, my kingdom is not of this world. Here's the thing, the glory of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel is this, that the God who was outside of history, the God who was before time and space, before creation itself, the God who was outside of history became one with humanity. John says that which was from the beginning. God in his divinity. You, you, you can't approach this by thinking that, that Jesus was somehow this ratio of a 50-50 God-man mix. Jesus, both fully God and fully man, Jesus was before the beginning. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus is from the beginning. Jesus will be after the beginning. This is incredibly controversial. 
In John 8, 58, in this great exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus proclaims in John 8, 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. He takes upon his lips, not just a statement. He takes upon his lips something that goes back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses, to the burning bush, as God has revealed himself to Moses, Moses says to the Lord, who shall I say sent me? And what does God say? Tell them, I am sent you. So here now in this moment when Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees and he says to them, he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's not a grammatical mistake. That's the divine name that Jesus has taken upon himself. This man from Nazareth, this carpenter's son, has now taken upon himself the divine name. This has caused problems. The cult of Jehovah's Witnesses have a really difficult time reconciling this text in their Bibles. And so do you know what they do? They've changed John 8, 58 in their Bibles. It doesn't say before Abraham was, I am. It says before Abraham was, I have always been. That's not what Jesus says. And it's clear in the Greek It's nowhere near what Jesus says. But because what Jesus says confronts, disrupts, and ultimately dismantles what they believe, they've changed it. They've flattened it. They've smoothed it out. Now, before you start going, yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses, darn it all. We do the same thing. We just don't get brazen enough to change the the text of Holy Scripture. We just ignore, right? That's what I do. I wasn't part of my Scripture memory this week. It's, I forgot. Because the reality is the divinity of Jesus, the claims of Jesus confront us. And if they're true, they disrupt us and they change us. They demand of us change. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is, then nothing else matters. It demands of us that we change. But the glory is that it's not God saying, jump. It's God who came down. It's God who drew near. It's God who stooped down to our level and became one with us. It's not just the deity of Jesus that John is talking about here. It's also the glory of the gospel is that God wrapped himself in full humanity. God became one with us so that we might be one with him. Jesus, the co-existent, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, emptied himself. 
came down. He left the glories that were his and humbled himself. It's the, it's the humiliation of Christ where he came down and became one of us. And John says, that which was from the beginning, we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, and we've touched. This is eyewitness testimony. What did he hear? They heard. They heard the words that he spoke. The grace that Jesus offered when everyone else who had the oracles of God cast them away. Jesus looked at the cripple and the lame and the sin-stained and the outcast and the thief and the poor and the marginalized. And they heard, these disciples heard the words that he spoke, the grace that he offered, the life that he brought. They heard him say, Lazarus, come out. And he did. They heard the rebukes that he said. My father's house will be a house of prayer. They heard him talk to the teachers and the, and the, the, the defenders of the law and say, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great. On the inside, you're dead. They heard him. They heard him declare the kingdom. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. They heard all of these things. They saw him. They saw him reach out his hands and touch the untouchable. To draw near the brokenhearted. They saw the man from Nazareth, the carpenter. They saw him weep over Jerusalem. They saw him weep at Lazarus' tomb. They saw him cry out in the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. They saw him walk on the water. They saw him feed multitudes. saw him laugh. They saw him whisper. They saw him pray. They saw him bleed. They saw him die. They saw him rise. They saw him ascend. They saw what happened at Pentecost when his spirit was poured out and all of a sudden the great dispersal of Babel became the great unification of the gospel as they saw all these things that could only be of God happen before their eyes. And not only did they hear him and not only did they see him, but they touched him. This Jesus, the one whose breast the beloved disciple John leaned on. 
the one who broke bread and gave it to them and they received it from him, the one who took upon himself the servant's towel and washed their feet, the one who calmed the wind and the waves, the one who grabbed Peter as he was sinking down into the water, the one whose nail scars and spear wounds were visible and palpable and given to Thomas so that he would believe that Jesus was the Christ. They saw him, they touched him, they heard from him. That which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is very clear about this fact. It is both the message that Jesus brought about the life of the kingdom of God, but it is also the man himself that is the life that is the kingdom of God. It is the man and the message that is the word of life. He says, we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Jesus, the God-man, the one made flesh, the God before history becoming one with humanity. It is Jesus who declared the good news of the kingdom, of sin robbed and fellowship restored. This is the one that they are speaking of. This is the one that they are pointing to. This is the one that has completely upended and disrupted their worlds in such a way that they will never be the same. This message of life, this message of eternal life is the only message that matters In this message, this has always been true. It has always been God's gracious, eternal plan to rescue his people, to give himself for his people, so that we might enjoy fellowship, relationship, both with God and with one another as God's people. Because sin has been robbed and fellowship has been restored. This is the message that has always been true. It has always been God's heart. And it has been revealed in these days, made manifest to these disciples who now speak, declare, delight in this most precious truth. John says, this is the, this is the authority under which we write. This is, the, this is the authority through which we come. We've seen it. We've heard it. We've touched it. We've experienced it. And because of God's great love for us, we are coming and declaring these things to you so that you too would also delight in these things. When you get to the pastoral heart, why? Why would they preach these things and and declare these things and confront these things? And ultimately give their lives in martyrdom for these things. Because the heart, the pastoral heart of these things mirrors the heart of God. Their desire was for yours 
and mine and the church throughout the ages and throughout the world for joy to be complete. Now, we'll talk about joy in just a minute. But I want to think about like a photographer would have an aperture on their camera and zoom out and zoom in. I want to zoom out for just a minute and consider one of the things that John talks about here in terms of the pastoral goal of the gospel. And he says it in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So, if you haven't grown up in the church, you don't necessarily know the, um, the cultural baggage, perhaps, that comes with that word fellowship. It becomes a buzzword. It becomes shorthand. A lot of times when words become buzzwords or shorthand, they once meant something but now end up meaning nothing. Or worse still, they just end up meaning whatever meaning we kind of throw at them. That's why it's really important to be careful about the words that we use. Now, I grant that that's an occupational hazard for me um, because, you know, we Presbyterians love words and we get all, all Twitter-pated when words aren't defined correctly, which, by the way, doesn't go well when you start applying that same rubric to your marriage and you start asking your wife to parse exactly what she meant by whatever word she used? Don't do that, David. Um, This word fellowship, that you may have fellowship with us. The, The declaration of the man and the message of Jesus is designed to produce fellowship. Fellowship can mean a variety of things to a variety of people. It may be a gathering of people together. It may involve food. It may not. It may involve a variety of things. But what, what really is, is he talking about? What is this thing called fellowship? What, what should the aim be? How is, this, how is fellowship, how is this a result of the gospel? What exactly is supposed to happen so that we are creating space for fellowship to happen? That's why it's important for us to talk a little bit about what its essential components are and what it isn't. Um, The good news of the gospel of the life and death and resurrection and atoning work of Jesus is the great reversal of the fracturing of Eden. Because in Eden, we were were turned in on ourselves as a self-absorbed, self-interested, self-sufficient, self-ish People, this great reversal has now uh, created uh, both by what by what has been, is being, and will be undone in and through Jesus. The gospel is undoing everything that Eden and the fall and our alienation from God did. This means that as an evidence as a fruit, right, as something that's, that's, that's flowing out of a people that have been transformed by the gospel. 
a fruit of this is that we are in fellowship with God and with one another. To be in fellowship with God alone, but not God's people, is not actually an outworking of the gospel, right? The church is not the optional add-on feature to the Christian life. God's people, being in relationship, being in fellowship with God's people is not an, ap- is not an optional add-on, one of, those, one of those nice upgrade packages to the Christian life. It is actually essential, right? The way that John uses fellowship here, both vertically and horizontally, John would equate it with an evidence of salvation. This is the way that you know that you are saved if you are in fellowship with God and with one another. And so just like a square, if you're missing two sides of the square, you don't have a square anymore. Even if you have a perfect football season, you can't just declare that you're a national champion. Even if you're a Christian, and you say you're a Christian, but the only vital thing of your Christian life is either the vertical dimension or just the horizontal dimension, right? It's also a falsehood to say just because you hang out with other Christians that things are really good and vital with you and God. To be in fellowship with God alone, but not God's people, is not an outworking of the gospel. It's still functionally us being in control of our lives. Fellowship is also... Likewise, not merely relationships or associations with other Christians. God, John says that it, is with us, that it is with us as their fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So John creates this for us when he says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus. So to be in relationship with these people, with the apostles, is also to be in fellowship, in relationship with God the Father and his Son through the power of the spirits. So what is fellowship? John's going to define it a little bit later in 1 John 2. Sorry, in 2 John, in the ninth verse, he's going to say this. abiding in the teachings of Jesus. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Jesus does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So part of what it looks like to be in fellowship, part of what it looks like to be, in, to be a Christian is to abide in the teachings of Jesus. To say that we are in fellowship with other Christians is only biblically true insofar as the way that we are also together abiding in the gospel. So I want to give you a couple ideas here, a couple ways that we can um, diagnose for ourselves whether or not our fellowship that we are in with other Christians is genuine biblical fellowship. Now, in the list that I'm about to give you, I'm not... I'm not creating this idea that if you, unless you are only talking about spiritual things forever and always in your life, you're not a true Christian, right? God made all things. All things. There's nothing 
There is nothing, there's not a single part of this creation that Jesus does not declare is his. But what I'm asking you about is quantity and quality. Quantity, is it happening regularly? Quality, is it intentional? Let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. Do you regularly and intentionally or just occasionally or accidentally gather together with other Christians? Fairly straightforward question, right? Are Christians, are the body of Christ simply your Sunday morning friends? Or are we doing other things together with the people of God while on the mission of God, all to the glory of God? Second thing, is prayer with and for one another a regular part, an intentional part of how we interact? Or is it just incidental or accidental? The great disruptor to this is when someone says, would you pray for me? And say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. How many of you remember that you said, oh yeah, I'll pray for you? Are we praying? Are we going before the Father? Are we interceding on behalf of one another? Is this a regular and intentional part of how we are being Christians, how we are doing life in the gospel together? Is fellowship around the word of God, is fellowship around the gospel a regular and intentional part of how we interact, or is it just merely incidental or accidental? So if we gather together among our friends, is the word of God part of our conversation? I'm not saying that we whip out the Bible and have a Bible study right then, but is our, are our words, are our interactions with one another, are they being shaped and guided by the principles, by the teaching, by the word of God, or is it just, oh wow, we should talk about the Bible at some point? Is practicing hospitality, engaging in the mission of God, ordering our lives so that we are serving one another and our neighbors, regular and intentional? Or is it just accidental or incidental? If you don't want to or, or, or don't think that any of those questions are applicable, consider this one. Would non-Christians look and see anything different about how we interact with one another versus how non-Christians would interact with each other? Is there anything markedly different about how we order our priorities, how we speak about the world, how we interact with things in the world? What did Jesus do with his enemies? He loved them and he prayed for them. How do we talk about our enemies? Do we have enemies? 
in 1 John, this is, the, this is the disruptive goal, that you might have fellowship with us as our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. This is the community that we are trying to cultivate. This is the people that we are trying to, that we are trying to cultivate, a distinctive people who love God, who are not fortressed or, or, or buttressed off from the world, but move towards the world in redemptive, incarnate love so that the love of God would be made manifest to the world, so that people's delight would be in the gospel. Because this is what John is saying, right? He's saying that we're doing all of these things and we are writing these things so that our joy would be made complete. You know, the funny thing about, the funny thing about joy is if you seek joy as your aim, when you've got it, you're happy and when you don't, you're mad. What John is saying is that when you seek Christ as your aim, when you seek God as your aim, you get joy as a byproduct. Joy always comes because of something else. Joy isn't the aim itself. Knowing God and his son Jesus is the aim. Knowing God and his son Jesus is the point. Joy comes as a result of that. But if you make joy the thing that you're after, okay, so I'm going to try on Christianity. I'm going to try on belief because I'm sad and I want to be happy. That doesn't work. Joy doesn't make you immune to the sadness and sorrows of the world. Joy enables you to, to, to look at the sadness and sorrows of the world with eyes wide open because joy is not your hope. Jesus is your hope. So John is writing all of these things and he's saying our heart as apostles, our heart as pastors, our heart as ones who have, who have heard and seen and touched Jesus is that your joy would be complete because you would have an encounter with Jesus. And through encountering Jesus, you would have relationship, meaning, meaningful, deep, abiding relationship with Jesus' people. Not only is joy possible, but joy is communal. I can't say that I, have my, that I have joy if my brother or my sister doesn't. What John says in 1 John 2, 9, he says he equates um, hating my brother. Look at what it says. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The problem is, we read the word hate as it's extreme, right? We read the word hate as intentional malice. Hate can be intentional malice. Hate can also be indifference. We are not simply supposed to drift along and hope that our brother or sister is ultimately finding their joy in Jesus. We are called to actively give ourselves up for the sake of other people. It's the great reversal of the gospel. It's not, it's not your life for mine. It's my life for yours, you see. So joy is not a self-improvement project. Joy is a people of God project. We write this to you so that our joy would be complete. Let 
Jesus prayed in John 17 for the restoration of this type of fellowship in and among believers. In John 15, John records these words of Jesus. In John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you. So this is the good news of the gospel. This is the declaration about the man and the message of the kingdom. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. It is an abiding in the gospel. It is in delighting in the gospel. It is giving up our lives for the sake of other people. It is at that moment that we find the that we are actually in a place where we can delight fully in Jesus. To say that Jesus desires that our life be in God through Christ, by the Spirit, and with one another, that, we, that he desires that we would have this fellowship. We hear the word desire like wish. Gosh, that'd be great. Here's the thing. We were designed for this type of fellowship. And because Jesus desires this type of fellowship for us, he therefore demands that it be a part of our life. He demands it because we were made for it and we're incomplete without it. But again, you'll get messed up if you think that what I'm saying here is go pursue happiness, go pursue joy. I'm not saying that. I'm saying go pursue delighting yourself in Jesus. Go pursue God. And it's a fairly short trip because God has pursued you all the way from heaven to earth, from earth to grave, from grave to glory. We write this so that our joy would be complete, our joy would be full. In pursuing Jesus, in being pursued by Jesus, joy is the result. God is the point. God is the pursuit. For John, everything that he writes, preaches, teaches, exhorts, declares, everything flows out of who Jesus is, the way he actually lived, what he actually taught, how he really died, the fact that he really rose and ascended. At this point, scholars think that John is in his mid-80s. That's why you see a lot of little children woven into this letter. Jesus is both the preacher of God's message and the message itself. And because he is who he says he is, it disrupts everything. Think about it. In Jesus' day, it, it disrupted the social, political, religious, economic power structures of the day. It disrupted status and standing. It disrupted the in and the out crowd. It disrupted alienation with God and man. It disrupted and disarmed the powers and principalities of Satan. Not only does God disrupt, he continually develops. The gospel is not a once and done thing. God's God's heart is to continually bring the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your heart and find those places where there is still unbelief and overwhelm you with his love to sing over you and delight over you so that you would find your heart ungrasped from those things that can never satisfy and find your ultimate delight in him. 
The apostles continued to be changed by the gospel even after they had fully believed and received the promised spirit. Paul rebuked Peter. Paul grew in his own understanding of his own sinfulness, God's holiness, and his need for a savior. Because here's the thing. Our life in Christ is never static. Arrival is when we see Jesus face to face. Until that point, it is simply the question of are we pursuing God or are we drifting away from God? There is no such thing as the static life in Christ. We're constantly by the Spirit, putting off the old man and putting on the new, by the grace and the power given to us by the Spirit. We're repenting and believing and obeying every time we encounter God's Word. We go to the language and the love of the gospel as our source of power, but also to to, to correct our course because we have a tendency to drift and stagnate. This is the question that we are confronted with today. When was the last time you were actually disrupted by the gospel? When was the last time that you saw unbelief in your heart in a place you didn't know it was there? And you repented and you believed. And you asked God for help to walk in obedience. Friends, this is why we're looking at God's word. This is why we're continuing to go and to be challenged by it because we're asking God to change us. We don't want to be left the same. We want to come away from, from, from worship, come away from hearing the word of God declared and say, God, would you send me as one who is a son or a daughter of the king because you've changed me. Today's a good day to be disrupted by the gospel. Today's a good day to stop self-justifying yourself as your own national champion of your own kingdom. Today's the day to to let God declare over you, trust me.